the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by Liza Murado. Liza has a new book out that is available on Amazon right now, Rat on Rat, a memoir with a peculiar twist. Well, as you would expect on this show, the peculiar twist has to do with D.B. Cooper. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Liza Murado. Liza, let's start with, when was the first time you heard about D.B. Cooper? I think I was in college. I was in about my junior year when it happened. 19, I graduated from college in 1972, so it would have been my junior year. It was all over the news. I was in... I was in uh, I went to school at WSU in Pullman, Washington, and and it, it was very captivating to see it, you know, unfolding and you know the images on the television and and all of it. It was I think, you know, we were all pretty glued to the TV because we couldn't like we just couldn't even fathom what was going on, and um, it was just fascinating to follow. It was a little creepy, scary too, because that just opened up everything. It's like okay. Any of our flights can be hijacked. Great. <laughs> That's kind of. You see, when when we were when I I went to college at Washington uh, West WSU Washington State University, but I'm from Maryland. I'm from Whitehall, Maryland, and it's every year I would uh, go back to visit my mother, but I, I wasn't a rich kid, so I couldn't go home for on. on the, semester breaks or anything. I stayed out here and got a job in the summer and just stayed here all year. But once a year, I'd go back and visit my mom just to see how she's doing. And she lives, she lives on this gorgeous farm. And um, the other farm was the Kaufman's. And I had spent, you know, gosh, I think I was 12 when I first met them. So we, you know, we had always been together as they, they had a daughter that was my age or close to it. And we would, uh, we just did everything together. I mean, it was either I was at her house or she was at my house. It was very close. And and over the years, did you follow the D.B. Cooper case much? or? You... No, I mean, a little bit, but no. And, I, and I'll tell you something. I didn't read any of the books that are out. I did read one because I got a little nervous about somebody I had spoken to before about co-writing this and I was a little bit nervous that this person may have jacked what I told them and I did read D.B. Cooper and Me but I didn't read any of those other books. D.B. Cooper and Me that's by Carl Lauren that points to Walter Recca? Yeah and it, you know I, and I read it until I got to the punchline that says uh, it wasn't him <laughs> and I didn't read the rest. <laughs> I was like okay it wasn't him moving on. But you have a D.B. Cooper suspect. I do. When did you start to put together that this individual that you know could be D.B. Cooper? This family.
family that I was very close to. They're, they're, it was Alex and Eleanor Cawthorn, and they had a couple kids. And um, I was home, oh gosh, it was like in 2011, and it was in May. I came home, and um, it started out where Eleanor had had some kind of heart problems, and um, I didn't want her to know that I was in town. I just didn't want her to, to fuss or feel like she has to make me lunch or anything like that. And so we were, my husband was working in the inner harbor. He worked for a federal agency. I, I'm not going to tell you which. I have to protect a little bit of my identity. But he, 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 it was in Woodlawn, is, and you can figure it out. If you work in the federal government, you'll know what it is. And he would go to work, and we stayed at the inner harbor at a hotel. And then I would take light rail out of the inner harbor, and I'd go up to Hunt Valley. And so that's what I did. I took the light rail to Hunt Valley, and I went from there. They uh, they lived at that point in Broadmead Retirement Center. And I said, gee, that's not that far. I'll just walk. And so I walked over, and um, the, from there, the the tension and the, the tension wasn't there in the visit until the very end, and it was just bizarre. I don't know what what it was that set Mr. Kaufman off. I don't know what it was, but he became very, very hostile. And um, part of it is that we had gone to this, he said it was a jewelry store, but honestly, I think it was, I think it was a pawn shop, to be honest with you, because there was no jewelry in the jewelry case. I mean, it didn't feel like a jewelry store. Not a good sign. Yeah. I mean, there was old jewelry, but there wasn't new jewelry. And it was an odd place. It was, there's bunch of um, car dealers on York Road, and this was the one little, I guess it was a building with store, uh, business fronts, and mostly offices, and and you had to go around the back, go up the hill, and you went to the door, you had to uh, ring the doorbell, and he, the owner would come out from behind a wall and look at you and decide whether or not to let you in, and this didn't feel like it. George shop at all. <laughs> yeah, it definitely sounds like a pawn shop. Yeah, or worse, or worse. I don't know. I really don't know. But um, so then they disappeared with the jewelry jeweler, and I was just looking at what was left, and there was very little in the uh, showcases. And then when he came out, you know, it's time to. I was looking at my watch. I said, "Well, it's really time for me to get back to the Inner Harbor and um, see my husband." And so. When he took me over to uh, Light Rail, there was something that really agitated him, and I've, I've never known what it was, but Light Rail doesn't bother me. I can take Light Rail. And so he calmed down a bit, and then when we got to the Light Rail station and I got out, um, she popped out of the passenger front seat, and she's a very lovable person, and she's just jumping up and down and just so happy to see me, and she's going to give me this big hug goodbye and kisses and all this, and, and he's sitting in the driver's seat telling her to get in the car and she close the door. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> what, whatever brought this on? I had no idea, and that was kind of at the point when um, I had known all my life as, as a young girl, my friend, the girl, had told me don't ever ask my dad about his past. Don't ask about his work or just don't ask any personal questions or who. It won't be pretty. He'll, he'll just go ballistic. 
And I always knew that, okay, he's got secrets. And I knew it as a kid. And I thought, even as a kid, I thought, geez, that sounds like, that sounds like the, um, it sounds like the mafia in Baltimore is what it sounded like. But I thought, well, what do I know? I mean, I'm only 12 years old. What do I know? I just had heard about it. That's all I knew is that it existed. But, I, you know, as a kid, you're obedient. And if your friend's father has these rules, you don't break them because you don't want to mess with the friendship with your friend. Right. You know, you just, you want that. I mean, especially in the country when the farms, they're all small farms. They're all about between 100 and 200 acres, but they're far enough apart that you usually had to have a parent drive you to your friend's house because they're, you know, depending upon where your friend lived. I mean, it always involves somebody driving you to your friend's house. And this was so great because I could just walk to their house from our house. That was, that was a surprise. That was so great. Anyway, I didn't want to um, ever, you know, <clears throat> as a kid, I thought, geez, if he says no, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I live by the rules. And um, so, I, you know, I knew that when he blew up at me that that was the end of the friendship because she had always warned me that it happens, that's it. So as I was taking the light rail back to the inner harbor, I was thinking about it, and I was like, I just got kicked out of their life. And I don't even know why. And it was so confusing, and I blamed myself. I said, what did you do to them that hacked him off? What? It's your fault. What did you do? God, I kept going over it. couldn't think of anything. So by the time I got back to the inner harbor, <clears throat> I had pretty much told myself, I'm out of their life. That's the end. And so I said, you know what? I've been keeping his secrets for a long time. And then I went home. I went home to Tacoma. And I was, um, when I was at home, I, I was watching the news. And this is back when, I, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this, the Summerhill gang in Boston. And there was a guy named Whitey, Whitey Berger? Bulger. Something like that. Bulger, yeah. And one of the neighbors, she was like Miss Iceland or something like that. And she had, she was neighbors to him. And so what the, the uh, federal government did is they started publishing photos of his wife and describing, or maybe it wasn't his wife, it was his girlfriend, but, you know, that she liked plastic surgery, that she liked makeup, she liked, you know, clothes and bling and, and all this. And, and the girl waited till she was back in Iceland and then she called, you know, she made a contact with the federal government and said that those people were living in the same building I was living in. And so they arrested him. And um, and one of the things that was odd to her was that he wouldn't speak about his past. And when I read that and I heard it on the television, I said to myself, who does that sound like? I said, God, that's Kaufman. And then I, said, I just said to myself, uh, that's it. You're done. I'm, I'm turning you in. I don't know what it is I did to you to, you know, have you react so strongly towards me. But... I'm done, and I know it, and so that's it. I don't keep secrets anymore. Take that. You're going to kick me out of your life and not tell me why? I'm not going to keep your secrets. So I began, I sent a note. This was like in June of, seven, of two, 2011. I sent an, an, an uh, email to the Justice Department, and I said, there's something about this guy that doesn't make any sense. And I don't know, and you know, I don't know what his story is. I don't know what he's hiding. I don't know what his background is. I have no idea because he would never talk about it. But this is his name. His name is Alex Kaufman. 
I'm then in a, but the, me and the Justice Department were corresponding back and forth. And in another email, I mentioned, I said, you know what? He's friends with Furman Hendricks, and I'll never understand that. Because Furman Hendricks was another neighbor who everybody pretty much knew to stay away from because he was a dangerous man. He was very, um, hmm, he was probably bipolar, and he had access to an awful lot of guns, and he loved guns, and he always had one on him, and he was an alcoholic, and he drove too fast on the roads, and nobody liked to do business with him because he would uh, jerk them around with payments, and uh, he just had a really bad reputation, and I couldn't understand it. I thought, what in the world? Why is he even friends with him? And then um, it's, I said to myself, well, wait a minute, when my my girlfriend was old enough to get married, she had her wedding at Furman's farm. I couldn't understand that. I thought, you know, you have a beautiful farm. Why you need to do it at his place? Do it at your own place. It's more sentimental. And um, anyway, so I, I turned, I, I reported him as well. I said, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but he's friends with uh, Furman Hendricks. And um, we had a few more correspondence. I don't remember exactly. It's not in front of me. I can't tell you what was in those letters. But um, basically, the, the one letter she said, you know, I asked her, I said, is any of this relevant? How will I know if I've done the right thing? Because it's bothering me. I'm friends with, or was friends with Kaufman. And now I've turned him in. And, you know, I don't want tar on my heel for turning in an innocent man. I just don't want that. I don't think he's innocent. but. You know, I, it's it's pretty sensitive because such a long friendship. And um, she basically wrote back and said that she was not allowed to talk about investigations into citizens. And, um, you know, I'd have to read the news and if I wanted to find out what was going to happen, you know, whether it was a valid tip about anything. And then she ended it with, if you have any for any more information, please don't hesitate to to, to tell us. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> that tells you something right there. They wouldn't say that if it was a dead end. But when you turned him in, what, what do you turn him in for? Just that you're suspicious of his activities? Just the suspicious of them. Anybody who will not talk about their past, who won't talk about their, their total employment, someone is, these, these, this person is keeping secrets. It's just, it's weird. Um, how many people have you ever met who refuse to talk about their past? Well, I, I do kind of an oddball podcast, so <laughs> quite a few. Okay. Well, whatever. It just, it was odd to me. It was, um, I don't know. Mr. Kaufman was a very intense man. He had a very hot temper. And, um, you know, he owned that household. When he came home at the end of the day, everybody kind of froze. And he'd walk in the door and he'd start shouting. And start shouting at everybody, and um, I usually made a quick exit. I just, no, I don't want to be around. I just would exit, go home. Mm. His behavior was is just different from all my other friends and their fathers. It's just, you know, they were happy to tell you anything you wanted to know about, you know, um, that they grew up in New York. I didn't even know that. My friend only knew that he was Jewish. That's all she knew, and that he was. She thought he was from New York, and that's really all she knew. He wouldn't even tell his kids. That's weird. When someone won't tell their own kids. 
Yeah, that's definitely odd. Yeah, that's a little off the chart there. So, anyway, so I turned him in, and um, and then I just started looking on the internet just for fun. And I thought, what is it about these two? And I had a picture of Kaufman, but I didn't have a picture of Hendrix. I remember Hendrix because when my friend got married and she had the wedding there, I remember him a little bit, mostly because he was obnoxious and he was—he uh, had a lovely, beautiful wife. Or I assume they were married. I don't know, but they were. Um, she's just the sweetest person, and here he is, right in front of her, chasing everything in his skirt. And I just thought, wow, that's just so rude to your wife. That's just or your girlfriend. I don't know. I don't know if they were married. I've, I've heard mixed things about whether or not they were married, so I don't know. I don't think it matters, but. He was just, um, he was a jerk, basically a jerk. That's what I remember about him from that wedding. Well, when did you start to suspect that he was Cooper? I went on Ancestry, and I looked up his name. And on Ancestry, family members will post their trees. And I, I went to one of the trees, and it had a photo of him, which is the photo that I used. And because it's on Ancestry, you can copy it. Anything that's, you know image that you put on on Ancestry is free to the public to copy. And I, had, I copied that, and I'm just by, I don't know how it happened. I don't remember. I thought, what the heck is going on? And, and I happened to think, well, I'm just going to put him right next to Cooper and see what happens. I, I don't even know how I made that sequence of thoughts. I just don't. And it, it just, it happened. I put it together, and I said, oh, my God, they look exactly alike. And then I was really fired up. I mean, I was, geez, what are we on to here? <laughs> so then I went and I looked up his, uh, he was born in 1923. So he would have been 48 in 1971. Which would be the right age. Yep. That kind of like the hair on my back kind of curled up a bit. And then I thought, okay, let's let's see if he has a military experience. And so I was able to find his registration for the draft, which they do when they're about 18. And um, did you have to register for the draft? I, I don't did. think they have it anymore. You did? I did. I'm 36, though, so I'm not, I'm not sure off. if that still goes on today. Uh, I didn't know. I know they did it during the Vietnam War. All the guys had to register. But anyway, so I'm looking at his, his uh, draft registration, and it's everything is flying up. I mean, his height, his his uh, weight, his um, the only thing that didn't match is it said on his draft registration was that he had blonde hair. And I never remembered him as a kid. I used to see him drive past my bus stop in the morning and in the afternoon. He never had blonde hair. He had black hair, dark hair. I don't know if it was dark brown or what, but he never had blonde hair. And that's the only thing that just wasn't. You know, check, 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 check. You know? Right. I was like, no, he didn't have blonde hair. So, um, but that's not unusual for you know, a kid to grow up with blonde hair and then have it go dark. It happens all the time. So, there we are. And then um, the more, it's just got, you know, it's interesting how much information you can get off the internet if you, you know, if you're stalking somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do really find out a lot things about there's all these websites that, that tell you stuff and then i hired a um, 
I hired a private detective, and I asked him because um, I had heard that that you know that Furman had an alcohol problem, and uh, um, his employees had all complained that they they had to bail him out of jail so many times the next day from DUIs that it was a common thing. This is back in the day when you could get a bunch of DUIs. Well, yeah, I don't know how. I never had a DUI, so I don't know what it was like. But yeah, but he must have had a good attorney. I don't think even the courts will put up with someone continuously doing DUIs. I don't know. Even back then, he must have had a good attorney who, you know, he paid him well (laughs) to keep him out of jail. Um, Anyways, so when I hired the private detective, I said, can you go to the courts? And can you look up for me what his uh, arrest record is? And But he couldn't do it because it was COVID. This was in the last couple of years when I hired a de- the detective. Right. And and um, he couldn't do it. He said, it's just, you know, they don't have staff. It's, they have to go into the archives to find this. And in the meantime, I, I did find randomly on the Internet that he had been arrested for endangerment of, of children or child or something like that. And when I talked to the detective, he said, you know, when they when, when they um, go after someone for that, it usually involves um, sex trafficking. And I thought, oh, my gosh. But then I never was able to find the resolution because he couldn't get into the archives to follow it up and tell me anything. He actually, I paid him a lot of money, and I didn't get very much information out of him at all. He got very frustrated because, um, you know, it just was going nowhere. I had him following um, Kaufman and Hendricks. I said, just tell me what you can dig up about either one of them. And it, it basically, too much time had passed, and there's no, there's no staff there to go to the archives to help you. Well, that's a drag. I mean, I'd have to go back there in person. And even then, they'd have to have a staff person assigned to me. I, w- I wouldn't, you know, they don't just lay it into the archives and have your way. Right. I'd have to have someone with, you know, someone from their staff with me. So I never found out what all besides, you know, the child, the child endangerment and that he had many, many DUIs. I really wasn't able to find anything into his past because he couldn't get into the archives. So then I called, I said, okay, I'm going to follow Kaufman. Oh, the first thing I did, when I, when I found Hendricks at um, Ancestry, they had an image of him. And I copied that image and I put it next to D.B. Cooper and I was floored. I was like, oh, geez. You know, at, at first I thought, you know, it can't be Kaufman. Kaufman doesn't look like D.B. Cooper. Not in a million years. It can't be him. And when I did find an image of him, it was it was startling, very startling. When I looked at the two images side by side, jeez, oh, what have we got? What have you just uncovered here? And um, I followed Kaufman, and I found out uh, more about Kaufman, and that he um, he was a Bay pilot. Mm, I knew that. I knew that he was a Bay pilot. But what I didn't know, and I and when back in 2011, after he kicked me out of their life. Um, I typed his name into the search bar, and it went to uh, it linked to Kaufman Concrete, Kaufman Concrete Products. This is in the Inner Harbor. I thought, what? <laughs> He's Bay Pilot. 
and when I clicked on that, um, it had his name and it had his phone number. I mean, he was the senior sales rep or something. I don't know, manager. And when I, um, I clicked on it, it had the same phone number that I had always used to call them when they're at Broadmeet. Broadmeet is a retirement center. And it was the same phone number. I was like, geez, he never told us he worked there. What heck? What? <laughs> he was hiding that. And um, that was that became important because he, at one point, decided he didn't want to live in an old, you know, 100-year-old house and wanted the new house and we wanted, you know, fresh plumbing and fresh electrical and he didn't want a stream running through his basement and... You know, he wanted a new house. It was all nice and tight. And so he he did something that was kind of odd, that back there when they build houses, they, they use, these days, they just use brick on the front of a new house, and then they put siding on the other three sides. But brick and stone and, um, well, yeah, you just don't see a lot of uh, stucco houses. You just don't see them. It's, it's not a great product for back there. Stucco is... is is better for a dry climate like uh, Phoenix or, you know, New Mexico, where it's nice and hot. Oh, yeah. In the Pacific Northwest, you see those stucco homes that are rotting. Exactly. And that's what was going on. It, it, so he, he built his house out of stucco. He has his youngest son come and live with him. And stucco, this particular brand of stucco, is... is uh, has been linked to kidney cancer as well as skin cancer. And his son was living in the basement with, with exposed walls. They never finished the walls in the basement. And he got skin cancer and died from it. And Kaufman, when he died, he died from kidney cancer. So he got it all from that house. And, and um, it, it was a product called, uh, it's either Drive It or Drive It or something like that. It's, um, it's, it's um, they point to you know it traps moisture, and it also points to the adhesives that they use in the drivet, drivet. There's some kind of adhesives that they use with the concrete that they silently seep chemicals out inside the house, and you can't smell them, can't taste them, but they're there and they're happening. So. Um, I just thought it was weird when he built that house. I said, why would you build a house out of stucco? Why would you do... Nobody builds houses around here out of stucco. And then I just thought, well, what do you know? You know, you know you're, you're not an engineer. You're, you don't build homes. What do you know? <laughs> so I let it go. <laughs> so, but um, no, no. It, it came back to bite him. Both him and his son died from the secondary effects of being around Drivet built house and, and exposed walls. The whole basement was unfinished. All that, you know, you go down there and all you saw was, you know, the framing. The other thing is, is that it traps moisture, and um, which allows uh, insects in, carpenter ants, termites, and they would literally chew your house down with you sitting in it. They they have voracious appetites, and um, I don't know. I mean, I feel sorry for the person who bought that house after they moved out. And I thought, oh, geez, I wonder if they know that that's driven. I wonder if they know that it's toxic. And I just felt terrible about it, but none of my business. 
I stayed out of it. But I felt sorry for them. The only thing you can do with those kinds of houses is honestly tear them down. It's just that toxic. From there, I started, you know, I really didn't, I knew Kaufman and I knew that he did, you know, I never knew that he worked also at Kaufman Concrete Properties um, products. I, I, I didn't know that ever. And, um, I thought, you know, and then when I'm looking at ancestors, you can look at people's old addresses. And he's got a place in Baltimore City. And I thought, why does he have a place in Baltimore City? What's going on? You know, and then, you know, I mean, I'm reasoning it to myself. I say, okay, he's a Bay pilot. He's tired. He doesn't want to have to drive home. That's why he has an apartment. In, but I don't know what it was about. It's just mysterious. And um, so then I said, you know, I don't really know. I don't know. Um, Hendrix, I, I, you know, other than seeing him at the bus stop and then being at his house for my friend's wedding, I really did not know him personally. I mean, I heard all the rumors, but I left Maryland. I was 19, and I came out, and I went to uh, junior college in Port Angeles, and I never went back. I never wanted to leave this climate. I did not want to go back to the humidity back there. I didn't want to go back to the bugs, <laughs> you know, and just the, the whole that part of the country, the countryside, is very um, snooty. Long, long families have held those farms for generations, and they're very snooty about it. And I, whatever, I wanted to get away from that. I wanted a fresh start. So coming out to Washington was just a kick in the pants because nobody really cared who you were related to. It was all about you and what are you made of yourself. I thought that was just so great. So actually, when I came out here, I never wanted to move back, and I never did. And I'd visit, but I didn't go back. So I didn't really know Hendrix. Didn't know him at all. And I thought, you know, my mother, she died in 1995. But I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go start calling some of the neighbors because I knew they still lived there. And I'd, I'd talk to a neighbor, and they'd tell me a few things, and then I'd say, well, who else do you know that I should talk to? And they'd give me the name, and then I'd go to the next person and ask them for a referral. And, and pretty soon, I had this picture of a, uh, a driven, uh, highly intelligent um, mastermind. I mean, he was, he, one employee said that he knew chemical formulas, and he said he was blown away because this guy could just blow them off, you know, to, to tell him. He had a molasses business. And you could see the the big drums, you know, like those uh, gas drums that you see near um, oil refineries, yeah. great big drums. Well, he had about six of them, and you could see them from the road. You couldn't see his house because his house was in a, you know, down the hill, up, you know, with a long lane. You really never could see his house from the road. And um, are you going to see those oil drums? And um, so his neighbors. They were telling me all about it and about how he had a he had a laboratory right off of his office. His office was separate from his house, and there was an apartment next to it. But that um, the only time it got used is when <clears throat> his father, they, basically the family, voted him off as president, voted Furman in, and so the father uh, they they sent him off on a vacation. And when he came home, he no longer had keys to the house. He was sent to this apartment. And it was this, who does that to their parents? I couldn't do that to my parents, never. Anyway, 
he has this um, he has this chemical lab right off of his office, and he's in that office in his, in his lab, and he's this guy is brilliant. He he put together uh, a supplemental protein to add to feet. Now the reason why molasses is important in the country is that the molasses truck and the feed truck go to a farm and they mix the molasses with the feed and it's important because it it controls dust and if you put a a protein booster in it all all the better you know you know he he was just famous for doing that Mm. and um and he was just um, a, a total maniac from the things that they told me. And I want to tell you something. My mind does not turn in the creative direction to come up with this stuff on my own. No way. I don't think like that. The things they told me, that, you know, were, were just so appalling about his, you know, uh, he, he was uh, someone who micromanaged his business. Like he would tell his drivers that they had to be on the road at a certain time. And he had it figured out. He had figured out how much time they would need to start those trucks and get them on the road. And he knew that they would be going down Troyer Road. So he he would, uh, in the morning, he would go to this, this hiding place on Troyer Road and he would time them to see that they had done what they were supposed to do. That's micromanaging. <laughs> I'm sorry, for sure. micromanaging. So he had his mind for detail and for planning and for, uh, you know, he had a herd of beef cattle. And um, he kept meticulous records, you know, gestations. And they had them all, had ear tags. And, yeah, I don't know that a lot of farmers bothered with all that detail. <laughs> Maybe they did, I don't know. My parents weren't farmers, but. I don't know that they were that detail oriented, but he apparently was, and he um, he was pretty iron fisted about running his business. It was his way or the highway, and um, yeah, he could plan out um, very detailed things. Like, I mean, he, anybody who can go into their private laboratory and make a protein booster, he's brilliant. Pretty sharp guy. He is. He's very smart, and and you know, you know. Um, he, he he was iron fisted in the sense that he they couldn't do anything without him first signing off. They had no they, they had no power and privileges. Did you bring up to anyone that you were suspicious that he could be DB Cooper? Never, never. Why not? Why wouldn't I not do that? Because I wanted their answers, what they said to me, to be. Uh, telling me about what his character was like. And, uh, you know, I, I said to him, would you be surprised if I told you he was involved in a high-profile unsolved federal crime? Would that surprise you? And they all of them said, no, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I didn't want to go into that. I didn't want to taint their answers. Right. I didn't want them to, you know, maybe they had a grudge against him, and they, they'd be like, okay, I'm going to really yuck it up on this answer, you know. I, I didn't want that. I just wanted it to be honest and just tell me tell me what you remember about him. What was he like? And did he ever do anything to you? And um, there was only one guy. I wish I had engaged him in a bigger, longer conversation. Only one person that I talked to who said he loved the guy. And I, and I was so startled when he said he loved him because everybody else was just so um, 
you know, they they would just like catch the breath and just say, "That guy's a maniac. He's nuts." And he had guns. They all said that. All of a sudden, I was able to talk to his um, housekeeper. That was a great find because she was there day to day, and she uh, she had a lot of things to tell me about what went on in that house. You know. Um, it was crazy. Who lives in a house with three kitchens? If he had a house with three kitchens, what do you think his motivation was for hijacking Flight 305? What do you think? I don't know. If he had a house, if he had a house with it, it, this man was also that what the employees said to me is that he lived beyond his means, and what he wanted you to believe he made and what he actually made were two different things. So you think his motivation for the hijacking is he's strapped for cash? Yep. Yes, I do. <clears throat> and I, uh, <clears throat> later in the story, I talk about, I think I named him Thor. Um, and, and when I called Thor, I was actually pretty good friends with Thor. Was, as a kid growing up, they, they had another farm and they had... Oh, they had a couple rental houses on their farm. They were pretty well off. And um, he inherited the farm from his parents. And he was still around. He's, you know, 80 years old now. But um, I called him. And, you know, of course it was, oh, Liza, what are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Just, you know, catching up. And and, um, and so when I asked him, you know, what do you remember about this guy? And um, he he paid he he actually sent me an email which I word for word copied and put it in my book. I asked him if it was okay. He said it was okay. That talks about how uh, Furman owed him money and he wasn't paying him. And it was uh, he had done. Um, let's see, Thor had an excavation business, and he you know he'd go around and dig up lakes, you know ponds. You know, help establish ponds on people's properties or pave a road, you know, grade it, whatever. He did the excavation part. Right. And so he's, you know, he was telling me about how um, Furman owed him money. He owed him $42,000. That's not pocket change. That's a lot of money. Back then, it was even more money. And um, so we went to his house. You know, he he kept, you know, calling him saying, and, and, you know, you owe me money or whatever. And the guy was just saying, oh, yeah, okay, I'll get to it. And never paid him. And so he got tired of waiting. And Thor, Thor is like six foot seven. He's a big guy. <laughs> and Furman was, I think he's five nine. And six seven is quite a distance up in the air from five nine. And so he went over to his, his property. She's just so sick and tired of not getting paid and demanded that he be paid on the spot. So Furman wrote him a check, but it was a bad check. And the reason why it was a bad check was that Furman had, he, he was behind with the IRS. And the IRS um, gets paid first. And Furman had no business writing a check for 42000 without paying his IRS bill first. And... Um, so Thor went to his attorney and found that there was a loophole that they had a certain window in which they had the, um, the IRS had to uh, levy, levy Thor's account 
for the money, and they missed it by like two days. But nevertheless, they missed it. And so he was able to recover his money, and the IRS had to eat that because they missed their deadline. That's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I tell you that there's no way I could dream all this up on my own, and I mean it. I, I, I live a very simple life. I'm, you know, basically, I'm an artist, and I, I live, you know, from painting to painting. That's my life, and I, um, you know, I don't even circulate with the neighborhood particularly. I'm just very happy with. You know, usually it's just our kids that we do things with. And there's a couple friends that we do things with, but mostly, you know, we do a lot with our children, and we're very family-oriented. So there's no way I'm around that kind of information. There's no way I could dream that up on my own. And honestly, it, it just was appalling to me, the things that the neighbors told me about this, this guy, Furman. Absolutely appalling. But for me, in the end, the kicker was the. I found a picture of him in 1980, and he's still pretty slim. He's a good-looking guy. He's got a goatee. He doesn't. I wasn't able to find any photograph of him without sunglasses. He just didn't want to be photographed without his sunglasses. DB Cooper was also a fan of sunglasses. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, when you see the photo, you'll see that he's very physically fit. And he was physically fit, and he was very concerned about his his body. And, he, you know, for a while there, at least, he, he tried to take care of it. And he was a little bit crazy. I mean, he'd, he'd have his children come outside and strip down and lay in the sun. I mean, he had two boys and two girls, right? And they're stripping down to their underwear and laying in the sun for 20 minutes. That's weird. It seems a little odd. That's weird. And the kids dare not challenge him, you know? They did what they were told. Did he have any parachute experience in the military? I have no idea. I wish that I could have gotten into his his uh, military records, but they don't release those. Um, they're, they're, you can't get to those records, basically. They're, um, if they're available, they'll be on Ancestry, but they're not public. They don't, they, I think they wait 50 years before they release any of that. And a lot of it has to do with... Uh, if the people are still alive, you know, maybe, you know, some other country where they fought in war and then somebody would recognize them and go find them and, you know, hurt them, kill them, whatever. So they don't release that. It's, it's not available. You, just, you can't do it. What would you say is the best evidence for Furman Hendricks being D.B. Cooper? He's crazy. He's a maniac. He would take a maniac and he was um, meticulous in planning meticulous and then you know for someone to pull this off and to pull it off you know so cleanly like he did and then you know there's um you know his 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 first wife ran away from him and ran to portland and so his children they're in seattle and tacoma and uh, no seattle and portland um did he come to the Northwest? Oh, yeah. Came to visit his kids. There's something else about him, and that is, is that he had his own little private plane. He had an airstrip on his land. So he really knew, you know, about small plane. And a small plane at 200 miles per hour doesn't need to be pressurized. He would know that. 
did he have Kaufman helping him? I have a feeling. I mean, it's just a feeling. And so much of all of this of CooperCon is speculation. And so I'm not going to put it forward as anything but speculation, but informed speculation. Kaufman, when I got married in 1976, I had asked him if he would come to my wedding because my father died in 1966. And I needed someone to give me away. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go ask Alex Kaufman because, you know, he was like a second father. You know, I spent so much time at their house. And we we didn't have family in, in Whitehall, none. I mean, the closest relatives were in Cincinnati, and my father's family was in Seattle. So never had the experience of um, having family. And it kind of made them my family. And um, But when I asked him, it was the weirdest thing. I mean, he just sat there, and he kind of pulled his bottom lip in, and he, um, his eyes got kind of vacant, and, he, and he's looking left and around the room and looking right. And I thought, what's that all about? Why didn't he want to come to my wedding? I have a feeling, you know, and this is speculation, that he was probably on that flight with him. And one of the one of somebody on on uh, the mystery DB Cooper mystery group posted that maybe somebody else left him some clothes in the overhead bin, and I have a feeling that there's something probably right about that. Oh yeah, it's totally possible. And I also think that um, see Kaufman, you know, if it was a water landing, Kaufman was involved with the mafia himself. That was that became quite apparent along the way. I mean, why it takes somebody in the mafia to be, have a sense of silence, don't talk about anything, loose lips, sink ships. You know, it, it's just normal people don't live their life like that. Or if they're in organized crime, they live it, and they're very careful. And um. Mm, I think he was involved. I think he helped him. And I don't know how. I have a feeling that, you know, possibly Cooper flew his small plane across the country. That's possible. I have a feeling that he landed in the water. Though, you know, you can't trace the sand in water. Kaufman had a lot of experience with water. You know, wherever he landed, you know. I'm sure he had. Oh, that was another thing about um, Hendrix is that he had a fascination with gadgets. And this is back in, like, 1956, you know? I'm just a little girl. And he'd drive by my my bus stop. He had this really fancy Cadillac. And he'd be talking on, his, on, on a receiver, like a phone receiver. He had a car. He had a phone in his car. And I was, I was just, man, how does that work? You know? Everybody has party lines around here. How could he be on the telephone and talking to someone? And, I, I, you know, I thought, well, maybe it's CB radio. I, I don't know. But it was just weird that, you know, he would have a phone in his car. Just weird. I didn't even know they made him. Yeah, and about what year was that? About 1956. Oh, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, it's, you know, if you have a fascination with gadgets and... um. One one day, poor old Hendricks, he got scared, and he thought that someone was trying to poison him. 
and he was sure of it. And so he had his housekeeper um, take out and throw away everything in all three kitchens. Now, his three kitchens consisted of one off the bedroom so his wife could make him shrimp for breakfast. One of them was for loading bullets and keeping beer cold. And one of them was, it was like, it was almost in restaurant style. I mean, a huge sink, you know. Um, it, it did, you know, when, when I went to her wedding, I looked at this and I thought, you know, it doesn't even look lived in. What am I looking at? This is their kitchen? Really? And I, you know, I assume that, you know, they only had, like everybody else, one kitchen. So to have three of them is a little weird. This, this uh, housekeeper was telling me about that. Jeez. Who has three kitchens? Who needs three kitchens? Who wants, well, if you've got a housekeeper, she's going to have to clean them up, not you. He had, um, he, he had a firing range behind a secret door in his basement, and he would go down and practice target shooting. And um, he also had, and I, always, I knew someone else in Whitehall that had a bomb shelter, and I, and I always was amused by it. But back in 1956, they still were having uh, drills at school, like if the atom bomb dropped on Whitehall, really. Um, you know, drills, what you, what, you know, how you would line up, put your head against the wall, crouch down. And he had a, he had a, a, he had a bomb shelter at the end of a long tunnel. It's weird. Unfortunately, everything is gone. He um, sold his property. Uh, they put a they put a golf course, a real fancy golf course, in there, and um, it all got torn down. So there's just I mean I mean I kind of dream like I wonder if they thought to take out all his tunnels. I wonder you know if anybody thought to do that or did they just cover it up with dirt? I don't know. I don't know. He had it all torn down, and they have a brand new, you know, uh, golf building uh, with a restaurant and you know, little shop to rent carts and whatever. It's very nice. He took off. He went to Bandera, Texas, and in Bandera, this I thought was very weird is that when he died, so he dies in 2008, and it wasn't until I think it was like 2014. Because I was looking for an obituary, and I was uh, newspapers.com. I was looking for an obituary for him, and it wasn't until six years later they ran this obituary. I thought, what the heck? Who who does that? Who waits six years to run an obituary for someone who died? Who does that? I don't know what the story behind that is. I have no idea. It's just odd. Everything is odd about him. So there's no and, uh, obituary for Furman Hendricks. It was six years later. That they ran an obituary. Where was the obituary at? In Bandera, where he lived, Texas. It's in the hill country, you know, north of Austin. I think he died in a Austin hospital, but he lived. Um, it's called Poly Peak Drive. Poly Peak. That's where he lived. Always wanted to go there, and just I could get my husband to do it. Say, can we drive? Can we go to Austin and then drive? The Bandera. I want to see Polly Peak Drive. I want to see what his address is. I want to see what it, you know where he lived. But I couldn't get my husband to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to spy. <laughs> so, um, 
No, why do I think? Be, you know, the, number one, you've got someone who's certifiably crazy, who threatens people with guns, who shoots neighborhood dogs and throws their, um, if they run onto his property, and throw the carcass in a pile behind his barn. He doesn't do it. He has his staff do it. Um, someone who, uh, you know, as I said, he's, he's a mastermind. I mean, meticulous. He's really, really good records and, you know, micromanages his business. And um, this is someone who's into detail. So that it was extraordinarily well planned. Yeah. I don't know that, you know, I can't prove that he did it. That's, I don't tell you straight up. It's speculation. Most informed speculation because there's so many things about him that line up one for one. The one thing that didn't line up was um, Cooper was a smoker and he smoked Riley cigarettes. And um, he wasn't a smoker. He was a health nut, at least when he was young. There was a picture in my book about, you know, when he was later in life. He, and he doesn't look fit at all. He looks terrible. But when he's young, he's really fit. Um, it would take somebody physically fit to pull that off. You couldn't take somebody whose weight got away from him. God, they crunch their bones going down. Yeah, you definitely have to be a little fit to pull that off. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that, yeah. he didn't smoke cigarettes. <coughs> but that may have been part of his disguise. Just run through cigarettes. There was one little conversation with uh, Tina Mucklow where he asked her, well, where are you from? And she said, I live in Michigan, but I'm from Pennsylvania. And he says, oh, that's a nice place. And you know what? Furman's business, he went to the town where I grew up, <clears throat> Whitehall, Parkton. They were right on the, Mer- the Mason-Dixon line. Maryland and Pennsylvania, and he did a lot of business in Pennsylvania at all the little farms that are up there taking his molasses and, the, you know, meeting the feed trucks and all that. He knew a lot about Pennsylvania. He, at one point, one of his employees said that he was the uh, mm, East Coast distributor for molasses, that he had grown the business that much. But then at the same time, you know, they're saying, well... <laughs> But he did it on everybody else's money. He didn't do it on his own money. He just robbed Peter to pay Paul. And that's how you, you know, that's how you do it. But he tried it on the IRS, and the IRS was, uh, you know, they made him pay. So he had, hmm, when I asked Thor, I said, when did that happen? And he said, oh, 1970, 1971. I'm like, geez. How convenient. Yes, how convenient. Well, let's talk about your book. If people want to know more about Furman Hendricks, about your story, tell us about your book. It starts out as a memoir. And it's a memoir of my life, my early life, and living in Whitehall. I did it on purpose. I want the reader to get a feel for just how small town this was and just how very little there is in town. I want the reader to feel that. And which makes it even more preposterous. Like, how could somebody come from a place like Whitehall, where everybody lives on 100 and 200-acre farms, and go across the country and pull this off? 
they had to be desperate. I wanted them to get a feel for, you know, um, in my memoir, you know, I also want to iron my parents, you know. I'm 72 years old, you know. My parents have been gone for quite a while, and, you know, I just didn't want to forget them. I talk about that, and I talk about, you know, the the history of the farm that we've lived on. It was it was a very um, historic property. It was, you know, first first part was built in 1760. It was uh, renovated in 1840, added porch, very historic. And it was fun. I just wanted to share that because it was it was on the um, uh, Underground Railroad. It was a safe house. That's just, just an interesting place to grow up. And that's the kind of places that we were surrounded with. I think we had one of the very oldest farms in the area. Um, but there were other farms uh, that, you know, came up and established themselves in like the 1800s. But it's, you know, a very small town, and it's fun. It's fun. I don't, you know what, these days, I can't imagine a kid doing the kind of things that we did. It just doesn't happen anymore. And it's just, it's such a, a great story to remember the, the swimming hole. It's a great story. These days, parents wouldn't take a kid to a swimming hole because they would be worried about Giardia or, you know, cow pooping upstream or it you know and we right. didn't care we didn't care we was like no it's a cold stream it's hot let's jump in and it was a different era and um than it is now and I, you know the kids these days they're they send 24 7 on their cell phones you know it takes a special parent to get their kids out and get get them to feel and love nature it takes a special parent to do that a smart parent get them away from those cell phones but that's how it was, and, and I reflect on that, and it's it it fun, and, and it, but, you know, it, it kind of, it flows, I changed it from my original uh, book, I, I changed it up, I changed the chapters, how it flowed, it makes more sense in, in this edition. The cover on this, on this book is hilarious to me, because it's painting. And it's a painting that we, uh, me and my friend, she was an artist, and we, she was over here, and we were drinking wine until the wee hours of the morning, and we decided to get out canvases and slap paint around, see what happened. And um, and she went home, and I forgot about it, went to bed, and I came downstairs the next morning, and this, this canvas has all these random images on it that I think are so hilarious. I didn't plan them. But they're there. And it's so funny to me. I originally had hired a uh, design firm to make me a book cover. And Mm -hmm. that was the book cover on the first one. And I paid a lot of money for that. I paid $1,800. And that's what I got. And it wasn't anything different than any of the other books. And I wanted to, you know... You know, let, let me give this another shot. Let me change it up. Let me change the chapters. Let me let me change that cover. I can't have that cover. That's just so boring. It's... So that's when I uh, I happened to be looking through my art, and I said, "Oh, look at this painting. Oh, this would be great. We'll use this as a cover." And I printed it. Uh, I worked through Word to Kindle, and um, you just provide them the image, and then they figure out how to position the book cover using the image. And they did a great job. I think it's hilarious because 
they have this kind of ethereal character that was an accident. He's in white and he's on the front and um, he's kind of walking away. It's like, it's like a ghost or something. It wasn't planned. It just happened. And um, anyway, in the end, it came out more better than I ever expected. I love the cover. Well, it's called Rat on Rat, a memoir with a peculiar twist. Mm-hmm. And it's available on Amazon right now or on Kindle. If anybody thinks that you know they can just write a book, um, they need a reality check because writing a book is more trouble than you would ever imagine. And, you know, just even, I mean, I, it took at least six months to get this book to word to Kindle, to go through all of their steps, to make, you know, corrections and misspellings and whatever. They, you catch them. They, they have you review it several times. Um, it was exhausting, just exhausting. And this is a story that I've been working on basically since 2011 when I got kicked out of his life. I didn't know that I was going to write a story. I, I had no idea. And it, um, it was in the back of my head for several years. When they closed this, this investigation, they closed it in 2016. And they went through a lot of theater closing this investigation. I mean, it was on the news. I mean, you had guys with hand trucks and boxes, and they're moving them around the Seattle FBI office. And, and they're saying, it's closed. We're not taking any more leads. And um, I thought this was really interesting that um, they went through so much trouble to, you know, I mean, it was staged the way they closed it. It was staged. They had their man, but they couldn't do anything. I mean, if it is Furman, and I highly suspect it, he probably was, um, they couldn't do anything. Guy's dead. You can't prosecute a dead man. No, it's pretty tough to do that. Well, Liza, if anyone has any questions or anything for you, is there somewhere where they can reach you? I do have, Rat on the Rat does have a Facebook page, but I don't know what it looks like. There is a page there. The other would be to uh, send me an email. And my email is lzmorado, M-O-R-A-D-O, at gmail.com. L-Z-M-O-R-A-D-O at gmail.com. Perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Liza, thank you for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you. Liza's book, Rat on Rat, a memoir with a peculiar twist, is available right now on Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. Go check it out. We have a link for you in the show notes. Do you know who D.B. Cooper was? Do you have a new theory? Do you have something to say? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Liza Murado for coming on the show to tell us about her book. Thank you to Russell Colbert for making this show, and I hope one day he'll come on to tell us about his own book. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.